Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. Joining us today is David Troyer, an award-winning writer, a professor of English at USC, and an editor-at-large at Pantheon, whose research is about the ways in which Native people are actively unseen, as Natives, as citizens, and as shapers of the modern world, and why this might be and what effects it might have. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Troyer. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You've written both fiction and nonfiction that uncovers the Native American experience. How, how does your approach change between these two styles? Yeah, they're totally different streams, completely. I mean, it's it's a whole different kind of job. With fiction, you, you sit in a room and you make stuff up. You know, so I would I would actually push back a little bit and say that my fiction doesn't doesn't endeavor to portray the Native American experience mm-hmm. or anything like it. Um, I write about where I'm from. I largely I write about my tribe, the Ojibwe in northern Minnesota, where my tribe is and where I grew up, um, because I think it's a rich, complicated, textured place. And so with my fiction, you know, I'm trying to tell a great story. My characters tend to be native characters. Their contexts tend to be native contexts. But um, the job isn't to represent. The job is to imagine. Um, But that's very different than nonfiction. Um, With my nonfiction, you know, for me, I've written two, I guess, big books of nonfiction, and both are quests, I guess, of a kind, where there's a fundamental problem or issue that I'm obsessed with. um, And I'm trying to work through life to find an answer. Um, So it's not so much invention, but for example, my first book, Res Life, my first nonfiction book, I was really upset with how reservations were imagined by most people as places of despair, as places of lack, you know, as places that were just abject in every way you can imagine. And I was tired of that. My reservation is much more than that. And reservations in general are much more than just little basins of suffering, which Mm -hmm. is frankly, how most people think of them. So I thought, okay, well, if it's, if they're not just that, then what are they? What do they mean? Why do they exist? Where are they going? And I was trying to make sense of it for outsiders. Sure. But I was trying to make sense of it for myself too. Um, my more recent book of nonfiction, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, really looks at Native American life more generally. The common assumption, and I'll talk about this a little bit later at the ATH event, um, and, but the common assumption is that Native American life pretty much just ended when the frontier closed, as symbolized by the massacre at Wounded Knee Creek in 1890. But I don't think that's true. And I don't think I don't think mm-hmm. my my life is life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it hasn't ended, and my culture wasn't destroyed, and my civilization wasn't in ruins. Um, you know, 1890 is probably a low point for Native people across this country, but. Uh, not the end. And so I set out on kind of a quest to, to, to figure out, well, if we didn't all die off, what have we been up to? Mm. What have we been doing? What is the what is the texture of our lives been? And what do our lives mean? So mm. totally different. Can you just describe for our listeners kind of what you're describing the massacre in 19 or 1890, you said, just kind of what that was, uh, the fallout of that, and then also kind of about how Native American culture has changed since that. And obviously it's so long ago, but where it kind of stands now. Um, it's not that long ago. Yeah. You know, for instance, for sure. so like, you know, where I'm from, you know, you get your 
you get your Ojibwe name when you're a kid, you know. And uh, my first Ojibwe name I got from a guy who was a World War One veteran. Hmm. I mean, so I knew a guy that fought, you know, 1917 yeah. in the Allied Expeditionary Force to France. Like, he didn't seem... He seemed old to me, but he really wasn't that old in 1973. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, so 1890 isn't even. It's not. It's so recent. It's not that. Not that long ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, that said, so in um, the winter of 1889, 1890, there was a dust up. Um, the Lakota were um, the Lakota had evolved a sort of new ceremony called the ghost dance um if the belief was if you did the dance right if you did the things and, and there's sort of the precepts of this dance of this ceremony were really actually quite quite wholesome generally you know you know you weren't supposed to drink you weren't you know supposed to fight you you were supposed to be at peace you were in all these things but nonetheless um the u.s government was pretty freaked out and so they sent the military into the um what was called the great sioux reservation to quote unquote quell this quote unquote uprising mm. um they cornered one band of lakota by windeny creek on what's now present day pine ridge reservation and um it's unclear to this day who fired first but a shot rang out and then everyone opened fire and by the time it was over um over 300 Lakota men, women, and children, principally women and children, had been gunned down. Not just killed, but they'd been chased for miles across the prairie and down these creeks um, and butchered. Um, there was a, this like moment of bloodlust, for which I think 28 U.S. soldiers received the Congressional Medal of Honor. <laughs> Very representative. Right, right. Um, you know, only in America, right? Yeah, Do, yeah. Can you win the Medal of Honor for... Um, splitting little kids open in December, mm. right? Mm. But anyway, so it was pretty bad. Yeah. You know, the fallout of that event specifically was pretty bad um, for Native people, not for mm. the soldiers, of course. Mm. And, um, but 1890 was kind of a watershed year. So it, and so, and Wounded Knee, that massacre ended up symbolizing the end of Native American life. And it's kind of easy to see why. I mean, 1890 was, the, the frontier was declared officially closed by the U.S. Census. The, the West was completely settled in their estimation. Um, our population hovered around 200,000 across the country, um, down from anywhere between 5 and 30 million at the time of first contact. Our political institutions were in complete disarray. Our children were disappearing from our homes and being sent to federally run boarding schools, compulsory attendance at federally run boarding schools far from home. Um, with the passage of the Dawes Act in 1887, um, we were losing tens of thousands and in the final analysis, close to 90 million acres of native land passed out of native control and was open to settlement and exploitation by companies for timber and oil and cattle and so on. Um, so 1890 was the bottom, mm. you know, a lot was going on and America sort of, you know, was changing too, right? America was principally agricultural to that point, but that was sort of the beginning of the industrial revolution of this country. 
people were starting to migrate to cities more than to the countryside. And so the whole country was changing and, you know, the West was one, mm -hmm. at least in some people's estimation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, big times. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, so just building on that, where would you say um, Native American culture stands right now? And also, is there a lot of existing literature on it? Like if I wanted to find out, or is most of the knowledge you have on it from like actively exploring it yourself? Oh, no. I mean, knowledge of what, though? Um, Native American culture? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there's over 500 recognized, federally recognized tribes in the United States. So we have to talk about at least 500 different cultures. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. That's so, yeah. There, there's no Native American culture. Mm. There are Native American cultures. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. You know? And it's pretty, there's a, there's so much diversity mm. from people living on small remote reservations to people living in Claremont. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, like me and like my children, one of mm. whom is sitting quietly in the background for you podcast <laughs> listeners. Um, you know, people live in suburbs, people live on farms, people live in big cities, people live in small towns, people live on reservations. So there's so much diversity of experience, so much diversity of life. Um, so it's really, that's an impossible question. Really, yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, but there is a lot of written material about Native American life generally. Um, there, there are an incredible number of poets, fiction writers, growing but not so many nonfiction writers, uh, historians, and then correspondingly histories, ethnographies, um, stuff like that. Yeah. So also, just, I just kind of want to ask a question a little bit stemming from culture about language. Sure. And I know you, like one of your big project with, projects was you devoted a lot of time to the preservation of, and I don't want to mispronounce, how do you say the language? Ojibwe. Ojibwe, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Ojibwe. You know, what does language preservation mean for like preserving a culture, preserving the identity of a people uh, to you? And then like, is there some responsibility you feel? Like what moved you to put in the work with that? Yeah. I mean, I should say off the top that there was a time when my older brother Anton and I were working on what would have been the first practical grammar of the Ojibwe language. Mm. But then I moved to California and it's really hard to go out and talk to people and record them and to work on the grammar. And I was also, you know, all along much more of a cheerleader than a doer for that project. My brother is the expert on Ojibwe language. I'm not mm. that said, um, and to your question, language is everything. You know, without a language, I would even say that, you know, you could maybe see yourself as an ethnicity. Mm. You could say that I'm of the Ojibwe or from them, but without a living language, are you even a culture? Mm. I would say probably not, you know, um, like nation building in a very basic sense, is so often revolved around language. And, and you know, we can bring up the case of Israel as a case in point. Um, and, uh, but one of the exciting things in Indian country in the last 30 years is the degree to which all sorts of native folk from different tribes are committing themselves to language revitalization, starting immersion schools, developing curriculum, um, getting language courses in grade schools, high schools, and colleges. Um, and uh, because I think we recognize that language is fundamental to a people's identity mm. and to the vibrancy of native nations. And that's been a, a huge thing that's been happening and it, it, very exciting. And it's very exciting and sort of um, gratifying to be a kind of tiny part of that. 
did you grow up in Ojibwe? Like, was it like almost? I didn't. Really? No. Um, my grandmother, um, my mom's mom, was uh, sent to one of those boarding schools when she was four, I think. And she wasn't allowed to return home till she was 10. When she returned home, she left speaking only Ojibwe. She returned speaking only English. Um, she didn't even, she, she told a story and she laughed. I mean, she was a weird, she was a weird woman because it's not funny, but she said, yeah, I got off the train and you know, the whole village was there and everyone's excited and carrying on. And, you know, I didn't really feel much anything. And my mom was there. Like I recognized her as my mom, but I didn't have any feelings. Then she laughed, my grandmother, I didn't really have any feelings about it. And, you know, she was crying and I felt bad because I didn't feel anything. So, you know, I knew I was supposed to feel something so but I didn't want to disappoint anyone so I poked my fingers into my eyeballs so it would seem like I was crying and then she just laughed so she didn't speak a Jibwe to her kids including my mom mm. and my mom didn't speak it to us very little you know you come into contact with it just by hanging about totally but not that much. And so it was definitely something that me and my siblings dedicated ourselves to and picked up, you know, much later um, or later. And then, you know, tried mm. somewhat successfully, somewhat unsuccessfully in other cases to pass on to our kids. Mm. So it is very much a sort of a, a rebirth, yeah. both in the family, but then generally for a lot of people. I mean, speaking of which, was there a point where you decided that this was what you wanted to study? Well, what, what did I... Was there like an incident? Was there a moment? Where but which this? Because I've studied so many things. <laughs> language? I suppose the language. Yeah, know? definitely. You know, I was in grad school. I went I went to undergrad at Princeton, you know, where there were like three other Indians. One was my brother. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was pretty far from home, pretty isolating, very white, um, very rich. And... Uh, I went right to grad school, University of Michigan, a little closer. Still, that's Ojibwe country. My tribe is in Michigan, too. Mm -hmm. So, okay, a little bit better, kind of back in the homeland, kind of, sort of. And then I just kind of got fed up with all of it, and I dropped out of grad school, and I moved back to the reservation. I started taking all these language classes, and I, and I got a job developing curriculum for Ojibwe language programs and was involved in early efforts to start Ojibwe language immersion schools at White Earth Reservation and Leech Lake Reservation. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, in terms of language, absolutely. I just I, I said everything goodbye. I said goodbye to everything else. And then I just did that. And how was that process? Like picking up a language that's like so central to your culture? Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I got to talk to all these cool people. You know, the elders that were sort of involved in the process too, who were first language speakers. So they were like, they're awesome. And did that kind of yeah. like enrich your connection to the community? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you really get to know people, mm. you know, and, you know, and you get to talk to these old folks, you know, and they're like dope, yeah, you know, and it, yeah. it's, and it was crazy. <laughs> like my, my brother did more of this, but like, like his best friends, you know, so he was, he's only one year older than I am, but during those years, his best friends, you know, he was in his twenties, are like in their seventies, eighties. These are the people he'd hang out with, mm. you know, and go do stuff with, you know, and uh, they have great stories and interesting lives. And yeah, mm -hmm. it meant a lot. Is your brother still working on Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, he just, he went to grad school too and he was teaching at a, you know, big, important university, research university. And he's like, you know what? Forget it. 
and he moved back home. He's teaching at Bemidji State University in Bemidji, Minnesota. He's living less than a mile from where we grew up mm. and teaching the language and still doing the language it's work. amazing. No, he's a cool dude. I don't say this often because he, I, he's also super annoying. <laughs> and sort of one of my favorite pastimes, and my son can attest to this, is trolling him mercilessly, yeah. especially online, because he's kind of not good at that. Um, no, I mean I have I have siblings as well, so I totally understand yeah. the the you know the but dichotomy. He's, of... he's not good at he's not good at social media though. And I, I'm trying to help him. I'm trying to help him, and he doesn't. He just doesn't understand it. Yeah, it's really sad. So another question is kind of like. Given that you are very much a prominent like academic in this field of like Native American culture, history, at least specifically, it's so broad, obviously. Um, do you feel any like – it's hard to s- describe the word here, but almost like pressure or obligation towards that culture, that part of you, that part of your identity? I mean I don't feel pressure, hmm. you know, but – I'm engaged in my community. I'm engaged sort of in a lived way. I'm engaged in sort of a ceremonial way mm-hmm. as well. And I do have ceremonial obligations around our religion, which I'm really not going to talk about much at all, if at all. Um, and so I, I feel connected mm-hmm. and I feel like I've got a responsibility as far as sort of my work goes, um, my writing, fiction and nonfiction and my teaching. Um it's a different kind of obligation, you know? Um, I feel like it's important to, to use, you know, the classroom and the books that I write, not as ways to change what people think, but really the goal is always to change how people think, how they see the world, not, you know, using a semester and nine to 12 texts as a way to cram a limited set of, you know, informations or, you know, data points or, you know, now you know Brit Lit, you know, from, you know, 1850 to the present, but to use a Brit, Brit Lit course, which I do teach on occasion too, um, to change how people think and how they read. Yeah. That's the goal always. Yeah. But um, so going back to language for a second, just because it's such a fascinating topic, um, oftentimes you hear people say like German and Latin are most scientific languages relative to English. Do you feel like your native language gives you a style of expression? Oh, I mean, in the language, sure. Every language is unique, but every language is commensurate yeah. with the reality in which it exists. So German or Latin, to the extent that it's a lived language, which it isn't, or Chinese or English or Ojibwe or Lakota, they're all sufficient to their moment, you know, um, and expressive each mm-hmm. in their own way, you know, but I give, I just, you know, give people a hard time. I'm like, yeah, someone will say something I'm like, yeah, what do you say? It sounds like you're scared. I'm like, it's, I don't understand that. I'm like, you know how the Inuit have, this is a, a thing that people say, which actually isn't true that Inuit have 30 words for snow. Because they live in such a snowy landscape, they have really sort of really precise words for different Mm -hmm. kinds of snow conditions. And people are like, oh, yeah, I heard that. I'm like, yeah, it's because snow is important to them. I'm like, but in Ojibwe, we have no word for fear because we've never needed a word for it because we never never feel it. Hmm. 
you know, we just, we just don't. <laughs> I was like, wow. And I'm like, you know, and they're like, really? I'm like, no, of course not. That's the stupidest thing ever. I'm like, no, of course we, you know. Yeah. I actually was going to ask, though, it sounds like a funny concept, but like, right? like, are there words or phrases that are like, you know, almost indescribable that don't translate well or unique sure. to the culture? Yeah, but that's true for every language. Totally. You know, I just yeah. can't think of what they would be for mm -hmm. Ojibwe that are just, you know, a concept that's weird. I mean, we have a tense and we have a way of inflecting verbs. So we have first person, second person. Second person plural, right? English mm -hmm. has these. Yeah. Third person, third person plural. We also have a fourth person, which is kind of fun, right? A fourth person is talking about something that happened to or was done to someone by someone else. So the third person is being acted upon by the fourth person who's more remote in space and time mm. because they're not actually the subject of it. It's kind of cool. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like. <laughs> Can't say I'm, yeah knowledgeable enough about linguistics yeah. to fully understand it. <laughs> yeah. kind of I don't think it necessarily, I don't know enough either to say if it's mm. unique to Ojibwe, but it's kind of cool, you know? There's a tense for like that you use to inflect nouns and verbs um, about people who aren't alive anymore, you know? Mm. If you want to say, my, you know, my wife, but she's passed away, say, you know, like, and so that, will signify that you're talking about someone who's passed. You know, I think that's interesting. Specific, Most yeah, languages don't do that. You might say my late wife or my deceased partner or something, yeah. but I don't know. Um, yeah, it's cool. Interesting. It's a cool language. This is a, a bit of a segue to a newish topic, but just because it's, I thought it was interesting, but you studied under Toni Morrison, right? I did. At Princeton, correct? Yeah. What was, I mean, what was that like? Like, it's like such a literary icon giant. Yeah. Like, is there anything, you know, it's very much a segue, but. It was fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. <laughs> She's like, you know, we have sort of, these are mostly memes in Ojibwe culture <laughs> and in native culture, kind of broadly in the United States. But like people, you know, if you're like pretty powerful, they'll call you deadly and like in a, in a deadly auntie, you All know, right. it's like someone who's like just kind of your badass. Yeah. Older relative, you know. She was definitely a deadly aunt. Deadly. For sure. <laughs> but, you know, and it's funny, and you maybe you've experienced this, and I, I doubt you're experiencing it now, but there are certain people. There are certain people, and you walk into the room in which they are, and you can kind of feel space and time bend toward them. They have this kind of gravity, and everything's like toward them. Yeah. You know, she was like that. She'd just sit in a chair. She could command a room. Hmm. I mean, just... She had presence, you know, mm. presence. So interesting. And um, but she was fun. Really? She was funny. You know, she was irreverent, you know, and she was excited about things. And, you know, I was kind of a pain in the ass. And um, we, I gave her a lot of shit. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. And she didn't like people who were afraid of her. It annoyed her. Mm. And yet she also wanted to be in charge of everything. You know what yeah. I mean? And so it's like, yeah, yeah. so like most people were just terrified and they were yeah. kind of awkward. Yeah. You know, and I just, she went just, for it. I just went for Do it. Do you have any notable arguments with Tony? Oh, yeah. Moore? Of course. Like, yeah, she hated the title. Concept. Yeah. She hated the title of my first novel. Really? Because it's stupid. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I know you're not used to being wrong, but you're so wrong. I'm going to keep it. And uh, oh, yeah. We gotten, you know, I mean, That's such a funny idea. Oh, it's terrible. Like our first class. 
it was this is too long probably for the podcast but i'll tell you anyway maybe it'll make it in but um i was walking to class and i was so nervous and i kept telling myself she's just a person she's just a human being and then the other part of my brain would say it's tony morrison yeah. it's tony morrison I'm like, she's just a person it's chill she's got opinions she's a human being with her own individual opinions doesn't mean she's right doesn't mean she's wrong you know that was the kind of mm. war going on in my head yeah. and i got to class well yeah and she's like, all right, I want everyone to go around. And it was a small seminar, like six people. She's like, I want everyone to go around and talk about what you're working on. So then people are going around, you know, all these tryhards, right, at Princeton. <laughs> and this guy next to me, I got so annoyed. I'm sitting there. And I was really insecure, you know, when I was in growing up and in college. And, and so to deal with that, I always attacked. I attacked. It's the best way to deal with my insecurity was just to attack people. Right? Makes sense. Yeah. So this guy next to me, you know, he had really floppy Princeton hair. Princeton know? hair, nice. Yeah, he's kind of like, just kind of like, you know, jerked his chin and flopped his hair. And he's like, my name is John, and I'm working on a story that takes place in Martha's Vineyard. With that accent. <laughs> yeah. And the protagonist is a half-breed woman who is the town drunk. She's half she's half Indian, and she's half white, and she's a town drunk. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I am going to <laughs> kill you. And so then it was my turn. Yeah. And I was just, I was so mad. And I'm like, yeah. I'm going to talk about why I write as opposed to what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And Morrison's eyebrows go up. I was like, I write because assholes like this don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> That's why I write. Yeah. They think they know what native life is, native people are, you know, because they've watched Dances with Wolves and whatever. <laughs> but they don't know. They don't know anything. Yeah. That's why I write. And she's looking, she's like, her, you know, she's kind of smiling. <laughs> she's looking at her paper and she says, says here you're an anthro major. <laughs> and I said, yeah. So, it's still attacking. I'm not, yeah, now yeah. I'm attacking her. It's like because I'm, I'm on. I'm like, that, let's yeah. go. Yeah. Let's, let's go, Tony Morris. Yeah. You know? And, and so she's funny. like, well, you write better than most anthro, anthro majors. <laughs> and I said, is that supposed to be a compliment? Is that what that is, a compliment? And she's just sitting there. She said, actually, yeah, that is supposed to be a compliment. And then it was like I woke up to my, to my, yeah. my danger. <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm, th okay. Um, then thank you. Yeah, thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Thank you. And the kid next to me, he was a really nice guy. We yeah. got to be friends, which says more about his generosity of spirit than mine, <laughs> because like I was a complete jerk to him. Yeah. He was a really nice dude. He's a really nice dude. So, anyway. but that actually gives us like the perfect segue because the two of us are wondering what you thought of the way Native Americans are portrayed in in modern culture, modern media, and if there's anything in particular that you feel like did it well. Oh yeah. Us. I mean, you know, things are getting better, right? It used to be, for instance, you turn on the TV and if there was a native character, they spoke one way, <laughs> you know, and they said one thing. And so I'll do them both together. Well, white man, in the ways of my people, yeah. you have no power here. Holy crap. <laughs> do I need to do that again so you can cut it? That was my yeah, kid's it's, phone. It, just, it adds phone. to it. I know, right? It adds to the effect, guys. Dude, silence your phone, bro. You know, it's like that. That's how it is. Yeah. You know, or how it was for a long time. And yeah, it was always exactly like the stereotype. It's totally. like you can't come on the reservation with your white man laws. You know, it's just like mm. are you, this is this. It's just so stupid. You know, yeah. it's changing though. Mm. Now, you know, we have like going back a few years, this crazy weird show from Canada called Letterkenny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you have, um, you know, you, you have the characters on that who are, sort of, to me, like the first like, like 
I recognize these people. They're yeah. so funny. Yeah. And they're like, so I'm like, I know that person. I know that person, you know? Yeah. And now more recently you have shows like Reservation Dogs. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, I haven't seen it, but I've heard. Oh, you should see it. It's brilliant. Mm. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, where, you know, it's just these kids in Oklahoma trying to figure their lives out. Mm. And being native is part of that but they're also trying to figure out how to be kids and they're fully realized characters they're interesting they're funny um and it's light years beyond what we've seen before so there's so much now yeah. that's coming out that's really good both on tv movies are lagging a little bit but also in literature you know mm. it's funny like tony morrison did say one thing once where she said someone asked her and she'd already won the Nobel Prize at this point. You know, you should know what you're getting, right, when you ask her a question. But they said, are you ever going to write books for white people rather than black people? And she, she's, she's like, I don't think. And that's just a kind of soft but very, very sort of sonorous voice of hers. She's like, I don't think you understand how racist your question is. She's like, you know. Growing up in Lorain, Ohio, in the 1940s, 50s, I loved reading Leo Tolstoy. I was in love with Anna Karenina, with War and Peace. I don't think Leo Tolstoy was writing books for a little black girl in Lorain, Ohio, but I got immense pleasure and profit from reading Tolstoy. Mm. Same thing for me. Just because I'm not writing for you, doesn't mean that you're not going to get something from me and from my books, you know? And so, you know, we're seeing more of that in literature for so long, even the sort of canonical sort of texts of Native American literature um, in the 70s, which is kind of the renaissance in Native lit, they kind of pandered. They kind of pandered to, you know, they were speaking, it felt like they were speaking to outsiders. And they were explaining Native life. But with writers like James Welch, and then moving forward, I like to think my own work, um, and subsequently the work of people, um, Kelly Jo Ford, Stephen Graham Jones, um, Sterling Holy White Mountain, um, the poetry of Sherwin Bitsui, Orlando White. Um, they're just writing beautiful works of art, mm -hmm. you know, from a Native perspective probably two and four native people from which non-native readers can derive immense yeah, yeah. profit and pleasure. So things are changing, yeah. you know, in really interesting ways. It's a great time to be an artist. Uh, Professor Troyer, this has been awesome. I think we're going to wrap it up. Okay. This has been so awesome, but cool. uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again for speaking with us. All right. And to all of our listeners, remember, please stay hungry. Great. Thank you guys. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Man.